You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, and I'm here once again to bring you the best in Christian apologetics and scholarship, and we're continuing our look at abortion this month. My guest this week is uh, going to be Dave Sterrett. Now, a few things need to be said first off before I introduce him is that uh, you could be getting this show a little bit early because I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon. And that's because I've actually got some things I've been asked to do for a wedding on Saturday. No, I'm not officiating this time, but they need someone ministerial to come and sign some documents and such. And it's a close friend of a family, so they're having me come. And so I'm going to be doing my part, so we're doing this early. And my guests can only contribute an hour today, so we're going to have a little bit of a shorter show. So um, who is my guest? My guest is Dave Sterrett. He's an evangelist, pro-life advocate, and educator. And he serves as a National Director of out- Church Outreach for Online for Life. Dave is equipping and activating the church to rescue babies and families from abortion and minister to post-abortive congregants. He is the author or co-author of seven books, including the Christian bestseller, I Am Second, Why Trust Jesus, Is the Bible True, Really? And the forthcoming Aborting Aristotle, which is what we're going to be talking about today. He has an MA in Philosophy from the University of Dallas and one in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary. As a religious historian, bioethicist, his speaking circuit has landed him at some of the nation's premier universities, including Yale University, the University of Virginia, Duke University, Bridgewater College, Benedictine College, Louisiana State University, University of North Texas, and the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, Dave, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much, Nick. It's mm-hmm. an honor to be on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Now, if uh, people in the audience might not know who you are, really, how did you get to be doing what you're doing today? Well, I've actually, Nick, um, have only been working in the pro-life industry full-time, like as a full-time position, uh, about eight months. And I have been really, about three years ago, the Lord really stirred in my heart to get involved. I was asked to be on the board for 40 Days for Life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'll come back to that in a minute, but I grew up thinking I was pro-life. My father had started a pregnancy center in my hometown, the church had gathered around that. I would, uh, you know, vote pro-life on occasion. You know, if you asked if I was pro-life, I would have said yes. Mm-hmm. But if, several years ago, I, um, you know, about, I guess about 12 years ago, I was right out of uh, college. I was entering seminary. I was going to seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had, uh, I was a youth pastor. And as I was a youth pastor, the Lord just started stirring on my heart that I needed to speak about abortion. Mm -hmm. And as I was doing that, Nick, I happened to run into a guy at a pizza restaurant at CC's Pizza, and he had this pro-life t-shirt. I made a comment to this guy, and I found out that his name was Flip. Benham, and he had two sons that were baseball players who had also graduated from Liberty, 
and he got to talking about the pro-life issue. And he challenged me to uh, speak on the issue, and I thought it was exactly right. So I was encouraged by him, and I decided that I wanted to talk to my youth about the pro-life cause. So I sent a letter out to all the parents, the high school parents and the middle school parents, warning them, letting them know that I was going to give a talk on pro-life ethics and about the abortion holocaust here in America. I started doing research, trying to find out what was happening in the city of Charlotte. But I remember Nick, the pastor, pulled me into his office. He was a Southern Baptist pastor like, like many, trying to kind of be, you know, uh, progressive, influential in the sense of a, uh, of a seeker-sensitive environment, not getting too political, kind of rebelling against the, you know, the Jerry Falwells or the D. James Kennedys. And so he asked me, he says, you know, Dave, I really don't want you to speak on this abortion issue. It's just not good. The parents don't want it. I don't really want it. And why don't mm-hmm. you do something about the will of God? You know oh, what, I, um, oh, I was gosh. thinking on my, my mind that, you know, it's the will of God that these students are understand the, the meaning of sexuality and the sacredness of all human life. And that's what I was thinking. But you know what, Nick? I was a coward. And I was afraid of losing my job. I knew mm-hmm. that he cut my paycheck. And you know, I didn't really argue with him that much. I said a few things, but I just kept on working at this church. Mm-hmm. And uh, the truth is, is I think the Lord gave me that for job. But I also think that rather than really trusting the Lord, I started leaning on my own and I wasn't strong. And so I didn't really speak on it. And um, I, I remember a young lady who I was dating who went to seminary with me too, you know, saying, Dave, I really don't think you should be talking on this issue. You know, I think a, women will be more effective as a distraction from apologetics. And, uh, but you know, a few years ago, just about three years ago, the Lord just started really stirring on my heart that I needed to do something to get involved in ending the abortion holocaust. And, um, and I remember I talked, Nick, to my friend. Her name was Carmen Pate. I ran into her at a coffee shop, and I said, Carmen, as a man, what can I do to get involved with the pro-life movement? I'm, you know, abortion weighs from my heart, but I really haven't done anything. She went on to tell me about the, the movement of 40 Days for Life that she served on the board as, a prayer movement that started down in Bryan College Station, Texas. It was a, a place where the community had heard that Planned Parenthood was coming, and they tried everything legally they could do, and they said, we're going to pray and fast for 40 days that, um, that, that this facility will not come, that Planned Parenthood will not come. Well, Planned Parenthood came anyway. But people started hearing about the prayer movement, and it began spreading. And soon they started a relationship with the, uh, with the lady who was the manager there. Her name was Abby Johnson. Mm-hmm. And um, Abby, eventually, when an out-of-town abortionist came in, asked, Abby to hold the instrument, Abby said that she could see the little baby kicking against the, the, the tools, and she realized that she was playing a part in holding the, the instrument for the sonogram, of uh, the sonogram section abortion. That really, uh, you know, moved Abby, and she walked across the street. So Carmen asked me to be on the board of 40 Days for Life, Nick, and I thought, well, Rather than just getting involved in the national level, I want to start praying outside of local abortion facilities here in Dallas. And so that's what I started doing. 
And as I started praying outside those facilities, I would often talk to people walking in. I would see, I would see that it was kind of like a business. It, it was people walking in who didn't have hope. They were hurt. The guard would walk in, would walk them over. They would walk into the door, and then I would see them, you know, um, a couple hours later or sometimes the next day, the, the uh, nurses pulling the, you know, pushing these ladies in wheelchairs outside the side door and just kind of dropping them off at the cars. And I saw tears and I saw pain in these women's faces. And uh, I could sense also, like I never sensed before, a really demonic presence. And uh, it was like, it was like, you know, I had read about, I grew up in a charismatic background and I had read about spiritual warfare and, and I knew there was spiritual warfare, but I could actually sense death right there, Nick. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I remember watching an interview. They were interviewing the abortionist in Dallas. His name is Curtis Boyd. He opened up the first abortion facility after the passing of Roe v. Wade. And they asked him on the news, Nick, they said, are you killing? And he says, yes, I am killing. But I pray that uh, God receives these souls with care and understanding. I thought, whoa, that is demonic. Because, I mean, you know, that's contrary to everything that Jesus said. Jesus said, it's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so that's kind of how I got involved is kind of with prayer movements and also just sidewall counseling. And then I started speaking on the issue. And um, and I guess in 2012, I had written this I Am Second book. It was on the top, you know, t it actually reached the top 10 of Christian bestsellers. But people were asking me to speak, and I remember I was speaking at a Campus Crusade for Christ, North Texas. They asked me, they said, we want you to come speak, and, uh, uh, and can you do something on apologetics? And I said, sure, I want to give two talks. And I told the assistant, uh, I called her up and said, you know, I want to give uh, one talk on defending the, uh, the historical reliability of the scriptures, and I want to give another talk on defending the unborn. I showed up to this talk, and apparently... That part of the conversation didn't go through. She, you know, I, I talked to the, the worker about, you know, my involvement with pro-life work. And as I was speaking in my talk, I hadn't shown any graphic images of abortion or anything like that. What I was doing is, is I was talking about the grace and forgiveness of Christ to anyone who had had an abortion. I was also talking about in Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist leaping inside the womb of Elizabeth. Well, as I was giving this talk at Campus Crusade, the director started making motions as if he was cutting off his throat, and he got up, and he cut my talk short. He pulled me out, and then he began to yell at me, saying, you know what, I'm pro-life, but there's no place for this at Campus Crusade. I told him, I said, sir, um, you know, I think we need to speak. Did you not know I was going to speak on this? He's like, no, I didn't know. Yeah, I thought you were going to do apologetics. I said, well, this is going to be one of my talks, and this is apologetics. He says, I don't know what your agenda is. Get your books and get out of here. I said, look, you didn't pay me to come here. I did this for free because I love students, and I want to teach them the truth about reality. I said, sir, on your campus, the students are here on the other side from their sociology professors, the professors of science, the professors of philosophy, who are introducing them to utilitarian ideas that the end justifies the means. I said, sir, if you're not telling them the truth here at the University of North Texas, do an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ, our crew, whatever you call it now, if you're not speaking on it now, then they're going to hear the other side. And I think we're responsible. I said, look, I don't think you need to speak on it every single week, 
but why not once a year at least? I said, they're here on the other side. He says, get your stuff and get out. I said, sir, if you're not speaking on this issue, you are a coward. We must speak on the sacredness of human life. And you know what? I look back, and it was just years ago that I wasn't speaking a lot on it, Nick. And so I, I'm now full-time with Online for Life, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged that this is a group of business people who were – who saw a gap in the market, Nick? Every month, two million search. There's two million searches on the internet for abortion, and so what this organization does is they place ads in, you know, uh, on the internet through Google, through you know a variety of resources, <clears throat> and they use that to reach out to the women who are in crisis, who are searching for, you know, abortion pill or safe abortion. So we place ads and all that, and then we have a call center. In the call center, everything we do is recorded, and it's um, and, and it's recorded, and we know what city they're calling in, and then we direct them to these life-affirming pregnancy resource centers that are across America. We work with about 25, and so this is a different market. Uh, there's many pregnancy resource centers out there, but often we haven't directed enough of the abortion-determined clients there to these abortion facilities. So that's what we're working on. And I, I, I saw this group of businessmen. I said, we have to take this to the churches and to the schools. And so that's my role. I'm the director of, uh, of church outreach. And uh, I'm speaking at university campuses and bringing awareness of how we can abolish abortion in our lifetime. Well, let's uh, go from there and leap into the book that's uh, talking about that. And the idea in this book is that We've actually committed an abortion that's led to abortions, and that's the abortion of Aristotle. Is that right? Well, that's what I said. As I said that in today's universities, many people have still been influenced by this ideology of utilitarianism to an extent that they say that the end justifies the means or that uh, the greatest amount of, say, pleasure that overrides um, other goods is, is is the best, and so I thought that the classical philosopher Aristotle, um, even though he was in favor of abortion, there's much good that he taught us as far as uh, the laws of logic. Now he didn't invent the laws of logic, but he you know discovered those. But as far as the laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, his metaphysical realism that says that there is such a thing as a substance, that there is existence in this idea that we can know reality. And I argue in this book that all the proponents of, of abortion choice have rejected Aristotle, and they rejected the good things that he taught us. And so that's why I said, call this book Aborting Aristotle. And I refer to David Boonin, I re- Refer to Judas Jarvis Thompson. I refer to Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, the professors, and many young people who have been influenced by these ideologies uh, who are in favor of abortion choice. And that's what I do in this book, Aborting Aristotle. I I take them on. Well, geez, why shouldn't we get rid of Aristotle? I mean, Aristotle lived about 400 years or so before Jesus, and they didn't know any science back then, and we know so much more science right now. We're so much more better informed, and all we, 
get from a pastor these crazy metaphysical ideas from people who didn't know better. So why, why should we care? Well, you know, Nick, I think you're exactly right. That's kind of the ideology that many people have is that metaphysics or the study of reality, a reality that is beyond the physical, materialistic, and you know, empirical data, that they say that all that is just useless and it's religious speculation. But wait a second, that very idea itself is not something that they have demonstrated to us empirically. Mm-hmm. But you and I both know that that is a philosophical claim that they are making. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they do is even though they deny philosophy and say we're just scientific, they themselves use philosophy. Now, some of these out there uh, are actually, they know they're philosophers, and then they downplay the empirical data. I found it shocking when I read Michael Tooley, who teaches at the University of Colorado, that he downplays the pro-life movement for placing such emphasis on the, he says, the biological facts concerning the embryo. And he says that personhood is not based upon these biological facts, but it's something that is developed. Now, what I'm going to argue is that I would say, well, hold on, that's a philosophical idea you have there. What is your basis that there's this vast separation between being a human and being a person? And so, um, and so those who hold to abortion choice, they're coming to that with a philosophical idea. Now, we need Aristotle, too. You know, the, mm-hmm. the Bible, you know, I think it gives a marvelous example. Is that Lucy? Mm-hmm. No, I'm still right here. Are you still there? So I think, for example, when the Apostle Paul uh, reasoned, for example, in chapter 17 of Acts, as an evangelist, he, when he went to Thessalonica, he spoke to a group of Jewish leaders there, and he appealed to them using the authority of the Scriptures because they believed in the Old Testament. They believed in the Torah. Likewise, he did the same when he went to Berea. And he spoke to them appealing to the Scriptures because the Bereans had a high regard for what we call the Old Testament. However, when Paul went to Acts, he was very familiar with the ideas of what the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers believed. Mm-hmm. And in his brilliance, as he was proclaiming the gospel, he took certain ideas, for example, of the Epicureans, that was true, and he took that truth to reject that of the Stoics. Then he would take an idea that the Stoics believed that was true and use that to, uh, to refute the Epicureans. Like, for example, the Epicureans were more naturalistic in their thinking, and they would say things like it would be impossible for God to to dwell uh, to dwell uh, here in a in a building or something like that, and so Paul would say, uh, you know, uh, God is, is not he's not served by human hands, and then the Stoics they were a little bit more, I guess you would say pantheistic in nature, more of a monism type of worldview, and he would take the idea. Uh, he says there is some truth. God is near to us, but he's not us. In him we live and move and have our being though he's not far from us. But we need to still reach out to him and find him. And so he used that, and he was familiar enough to reject the falsehood, embrace the truth, and then proclaim the true gospel. And so, for example, philosophy is very important. If we don't have minds that can understand the truth, the idea of, well, you know, does God exist? Is there such thing of of morality? What is the basis of morality? Uh, These are all philosophical questions, and as 
followers of Jesus, we we need to have you know philosophy. You know, God said in Isaiah one, "Come, let us reason together." And so I uh, I say that we need to keep some of the teaching of Aristotle, and that's what I try to and I and I argue that some of that teaching of Aristotle may help us and may help those in academia to be more open to the pro-life position. It's important to note that everything you just told me, essentially, an atheist could have said the exact same thing. Your argument doesn't depend upon theism, per se, although it certainly works well with theism. Your mm-hmm. argument just depends on good metaphysics. It does. It does append to uh, good metaphysics. Now, I make the case that, um, that the best explanation of objective moral values um, would, would the best cause or explanation would be some sort of transcendence. And it's better to be explained rather than some abstract immaterial forms like what Plato believed in. A better explanation would be in, in a transcendent being, a, a very being who is necessary in his very existence. And so I argue that, uh, that theism is the best explanation of why there are these objective moral values. But you're right. It seems to me that someone uh, who embraced Aristotle's metaphysics combined with what we know today of, the, of embryology, uh, it seems to me that they should be pro-life. They should hold the pro-life position and be more open to that. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, get into the uh, substance, as it were, of substance. Yes. You were talking about that we need to return to this. What is substance and uh, even for me we could say where is these I put this chemical here I put this chemical here I put them together I've got a substance yeah a substance um, is um, is a um, distinct entity whole organism for example of um, that uh, for example, we take the uh, take you know take a take a dog, take a uh, a um, a specific bulldog as the type of bulldog. That dog may go through different changes, and those changes may refer to the accidents, uh, such as the time or the location whether it's being acted upon or acting on something else, um, whether that those, um, you know, whether it is um, moving or stationary, that dog will go through changes. In fact, as human beings, our makeup will go through changes. We will, um, like a baby doesn't look like a, Teenager, nor does a teenager look like an elderly woman. The cells will go through processes, but the changes that are taking place are not the change of substance. Rather, those are changes in the accidents. And so the whole organism, whether that is an individual um, bulldog or an individual human being, substance, I refer to substance as individuals. Um, like Nick, like Socrates, like a particular bulldog named Rufus. You know, these are individuals, and I think individuality is 
key to substance. And even though we all go through certain changes, we lose hair, we uh, gain size, we lose size, our cells change, there is a unity that we hold to even though we go through all these changes in life. And so the mind, the empirical data that we have may observe these empirical, um, you know, small changes, but the mind acts upon the, that and we can know that substance is. And so um, that's a little bit what I talk about in, the, in that book. Yeah, I think something we need to add to that also is that when you talk about accidents, that something that can be common to a species can still be an accident. It's not essential to that. I mean, for instance, let's suppose Ali and I were out driving tonight and we get in a car accident of sorts and I lose my left arm in that accident. Yeah. Where it's common for people to have two arms, but that doesn't mean I'm less human because there's nothing essential about being a human that says you have to have two arms and heck for that matter we'd say uh, baboons and chimps and others are humans because they have two arms to a certain extent but um but we have to ask what is it that really makes a human a human and this can come along with the whole idea of uh, of children who are disabled and of course that's getting personal since my wife and I both have disabilities and we can look at a disabled child and say they don't have what's common to the rest of us and we'll say therefore maybe we should just end their lives beforehand and do you think that's important to consider also? I think that's an ex excellent point. I think one of the points that I, I use in the, in the book is that for example a, a, a dog who doesn't have the ability to bark mm -hmm. is still a dog and likewise uh, there's still a unity to substance even though some of our functions throughout life may not function properly. In fact, we all will reach a point in which some of those functions may not operate the same way and, for example, I might have been able to, you know, jump higher than I used to and, and suppose I have to go through a major surgery like you appealed to and I would have a, you know, a, say a finger removed or, or a leg removed or something like that the person still remains the same. The accidents may change, but mm -hmm. uh, there's still unity uh, of that substance. And I think that's very important because many of the utilitarians, um, for example, Peter Singer, who I appeal to, is that he believes that personhood is based on certain functions. And many of these pro-abortionists, they, they disagree amongst each other about what those quality are. Some would mm -hmm. say it's, you know, uh, the awareness to feel pain. Others would say that it's uh, certain levels of consciousness, or some would say it's the heartbeat. Some would say it's being born. Um, but again, whenever they make that conclusion, they're basing that upon certain functions. But we are not human beings because of these functions necessarily. Rather, these functions that you and I have, Nick, these follow, follow our existence. And so uh, to be a human being is that we are human beings and the aspect of our functions follow from that, but even if they don't all follow, we're still human. Mm -hmm. I think a mundane example of something we can use this to explain substances, let's take some triangles. You can have equilateral, you can have isosceles, you can have scaling triangles. 
You can have different sizes. You can have different colors. And you could present, draw, draw all of these and present them to me. And I could let them say, okay, those are all triangles. That's nice. I want to see a picture of triangularity. Yeah. It's like, well, don't you see all these triangles? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't want to see the triangles. I want to see triangularity. Yeah. And that can't be shown. But at the same time, when we talk about triangularity, we have to ask, what is it? Where it's belief in a planar figure that has three sides and three angles. That is absolutely essential, and nothing can ever change that. We will not come across new evidence tomorrow that says, boy, we were wrong about what a triangle is. Right. And you're, you're exactly right. And I think also these, these concepts of universals mm -hmm. that apply to us, I think it's important. And I know some philosophers who um, are either, I guess, they would follow after the philosopher William of Ockham, who would be known as nominalist, they would kind of reject uh, substance altogether and really emphasize the particulars. But I, 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 um, I think that could lead to problems in the, the, um, in the debate of really what it means to be human. And I think to some extent our initial empirical data doesn't give us all that. However, I think the mind acts upon that. And since we are a uh, composite and our, we're a unity of both soul and body, our minds can know that substance is and that there are, uh, it, there are substances and there are also universals. For example, there is such a thing as being human or, uh, being a dog or being a tree that applies across and there's not, so it seems to be that there really is something that exists such a substance. Okay, so let's suppose we get an idea that there is such a thing as what it means to be a human being, to have a substance of a human being. Okay, what difference does this make? Well, one thing that I, I, I said is that Thomas Aquinas, I, I cited him, and he said that a small era in the beginning of something is a great one in the end. See, if we don't um, if we deny that we can have uh, knowledge, if we deny that there are individuals, um, if, we if we affirm that uh, what it means to be a human is merely based upon certain biological functions and that you can lose the status of personhood, I think they can have dangerous implications. I think an implication that could be dangerous is the idea that personhood is something that is not intrinsic to being a human being, but it's something that society decides. And any time we've looked at society and society has said that, you know, that, that these people are persons because they have uh, these functions and these aren't because they don't have these functions. I mean, what has that led? Well, it's led to racism. It's led to discrimination to uh, children with uh, Down syndrome. That, you know, it's very, mm -hmm. you know, Children who have Down syndrome are uh, very, like over 80% likely uh, to be aborted. I mean, it's very high. Uh, it's led to the Holocaust. The, the idea is led to um, the whole uh, slavery and stuff like that. And so I, I think these ideas uh, that would say that, that human beings and that personhood are so separated that someone can lose their status of person or gain it, based upon what society says is the right function or based upon government, 
I think that leads to dangerous implications, and we've seen that throughout history. Mm-hmm. So how exactly do you recommend we bring this about? Because so many of our people are just out there just ready to dismiss metaphysics and philosophy entirely. How do we start spreading this message? Well, that's why I try to write this book. This book is a short book. It's about 120 pages. It's something, it's not for the very advanced scholar who's spent hours and hours reading through Aristotle, uh, but I see this as a beginning book, and I, I hope pastors get this. I hope people within the church will, will read this and to understand why this is so important. Because you know what? The embryologists and those who are in favor of abortion, they know the, the, the idea, they know that the unborn are, um, they know that they are members of the species Homo sapiens. And so I think to have this introduction to philosophy will help awaken to say, okay, how do you talk to someone who acknowledges that the unborn are human? How do you refute their ideas and defend the unborn? Uh, like, for example, I, I cited this. I cited that um, even Peter Singer says this. Um, Peter Singer wrote, Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes and the cells of the living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of his existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. Well, Peter Singer also believes that infanticide outside the womb is morally justified. Mm-hmm. Why does he believe that? It's based upon philosophy. And I don't have the exact quote memorized, but I, I know that many like C.S. Lewis talk about that uh, good philosophy must exist so that bad philosophy can be answered. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, uh, I think by nature, many of us are aware of some of these philosophical truths. But what philosophy does is it helps us to be more precise. It helps us to, to be more disciplined. And I learned a lot in this paper because it really forced me to look and say, okay, now, why do I believe that? And so uh, working on this, this book, this small book of about 120 pages, really helped me. And I leaned a lot upon, you know, Aristotle and, and I cite Plato and I uh, cite Thomas Aquinas and, and Augustine and others in this. But um, it, it was a good experience for me just to wrestle with a lot of these texts. Yeah, for uh, people wondering about the length, let me go ahead and say this also, that this is a great book packed with information. So you get a, little, you get a whole lot for your buck because... There's a small number of pages, but there's a whole lot in there, and it is good starting material. I mean, if, you're, if you've been familiar with Aristotle and Aquinas for a lot, you might not get a lot new, but if you're not, and that's the kind of person that you wrote this book for, then you're going to get something out of it. And yes, it is a quick read. I read it over Christmas, actually, when we were visiting my in-laws, as it stands um, my father-in-law and my brother-in-law both happen to like to watch football games and for me when that can happens I say oh good time to get out the book and <laughs> so I, I just start sat there re- reading on my Kindle and you go through it very quickly when you're reading this book and also Davis certainly I can reset he goes through and he cites the uh, the proponents of abortion constantly there, there's no doubt that uh, when you get read this book, say, okay, this guy, even if I don't agree with him, he's at least informed himself on what the opposition thinks. 
Yes, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, uh, you know, really try to understand what does David Boonin believe who teaches at the University of Colorado? Why was Judith Jarvis Thompson, who taught at MIT, so why was her violin analogy so influential? It's still quoted so much today, and, and a lot of young ethicists still appeal to her. So I wanted to try to take their very best arguments and respond to it away. And so um, I, I think this is more of a applied ethics. And so this shows how these ancient ideas apply to a very important ethical debate that we're still having today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it interesting, go back to something you said at the start of a show, because I just told this to a friend of mine maybe a month or so ago, because he's very much interested in pro-life stuff, and so I... I'm saying, you know, I was just thinking about this, that it seems odd that in our culture, we always want to go with science on anything. Where science says, science says, science says. And I'm not against science, but there are some issues where science really doesn't have a final say, and we don't often realize that. And so, yeah, it seems like we're always going with science in the secular culture until we get to abortion. And then all of a sudden, the rules change, and the science, it, it's kind of put secondary. It's just so amazingly odd. You're exactly right, Nick. That's a great man, that's a good, good um, example. You know, I I think about the um, you know, the billions of dollars that NASA invested just to find the possibility of trying to find that life could have existed in Mars years ago. And they find the littlest bit of evidence and they think, oh, we now have reasonable evidence that life could have existed in Mars millions of years ago and so forth. But yet, those in favor of abortion, the leading scholars, acknowledge that the unborn are human beings. And so in pop culture and also in politics and even the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade and, um, you know, this it's been based not upon science, but based upon bad philosophy. And I think, you know what, we need to restore good philosophy uh, to education today. Yeah, it's, it's something I've noticed, in fact, that uh, when I was growing up in the public schools, we didn't have classes on philosophy. We didn't have classes on logic. And yet, uh, who is it that's teaching it the most, I find? private Christian schools. You know, the schools that are supposed to be anti-logic and anti-reason. These are the ones teaching reason and logic and philosophy. And if you look at what the ancient universities taught, which were established by Christians, logic and philosophy were taught regularly. It was absolutely essential. And as much as we think the study of theology is important, before you could study theology, you had to master those yeah. yeah, and in fact, I, I, I just, you know, I think I, I got my second master's degree at the University of Dallas, and there would be priests, uh, are those men wanting to study to be a priest? Before the priest could go enroll in their theological master's of theology, I think they were required to have two to three years of philosophy first. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've just moved away from that, and I'm concerned about our seminaries. You know, and and, oh, yeah. and and the truth is, many seminaries across America, they would say, "Well, we're pro-life," but they don't even wrestle with the issue. They don't mm-hmm. speak on it. And the truth is, is 
around the time of Roe v. Wade, a couple years before, many of these seminaries, the prominent ones that we think about, Southern Baptist, even Dallas Seminary and others, they did a, they came together by an event sponsored by Christianity Today. And all these scholars, although they believed that there were moral problems in a struggle with the abortion debate, they concluded at the end of this that abortion should be legal. And you know what? We've paid a price. We've paid a price of 57 million innocent babies who've been uh, killed in the United States because, um, because I don't think the church spoke up when we needed to. And I think this goes about every single ethical issue. It goes to the, the, to the debate about is marriage something that, uh, that we kind of can define and, and, you know, come up with our own definition and that marriage is just two people loving each other, something that society, this, this, you know, decides based upon two people loving each other? Or does marriage really exist? Is it mm-hmm. something like the, that just exists independent upon um, our definitions? And I, I would say that, yes, God is the uh, giver of marriage. He, he is the moral laws per, uh, you know, prescriber. But even if you don't believe in God, it seems that you would at least acknowledge that there are certain things of natural law and natural right. And you know, the other side, they, they take that from us. They, they say, well, we don't believe in God, but they keep claiming about, well, I have women's rights or gay rights and so forth. Well, wait a second. You talk about these rights. How do you, how do you define that? What is the very basis of you saying rights? Can you take me to the scientific laboratory at your university and show me what rights look like? Mm-hmm. No, that's not an empirical study you can do. You are appealing to something of philosophy, something that is immaterial when you talk about rights. That's mm-hmm. a philosophical idea from Aristotle, not an empirical uh, data that we can observe in your laboratory at your university. Yeah, I'd like to <clears throat> take this moment to uh, let people know some things. First off, this is the Deeper Waters podcast. Right now, I've got Dave Stilled on. We're going to have an hour show today. We're talking about his book, Aborting Aristotle. But if you're listening next week, I want to have Warner Mischke come on. He's written a book recently called the Global Gospel, which is going to be about delivering the gospel of the majority world, and maybe we need to understand something besides our individualistic Western guilt-innocence culture, if we're going to do that, and could understanding the majority world actually help us understand the Bible here in the West? It's going to be a very interesting show. I'd also like to remind you all that everything I do here, it's supported by you. I don't get a penny from anyone else. No one pays me to put on this show. I don't pay my guests anything to come on. They give of their own free time. And I would really hope you would give. And we do have a new way for you to give now. And that's to go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. That's our new website. And you'll find links there. You can find links to uh, making donations. And if you click the, don- the link to a donation, you'll get, get taken to Risen Jesus. If you do that, just uh, make your donation there and then email me or email Mike or Debbie Lacona and say, Hey, I made a donation. I made it to Nick Peters of Deeper Waters. I want to make sure he gets it. And we will make sure that you that I'm the one who gets that donation and it will be tax deductible. And also we have links to some ebooks that I've written, including one of my latest ones, 
the Apostles' Creed, a creed for the ages. And of course I got some other stuff I'm very pleased with, such as defining inerrancy. And then we've got an Amazon store as well. And if you're planning on buying a book, you can buy a book through the Amazon store through my link and we'll get some of the proceeds. Now Dave, do you have uh, any cause you'd like people to donate to? Well, sure. I mean, if people want to uh, don- make a donation to the pro-life cause, the group that I'm working with and serving this message to has done a phenomenal job. They're called Online for Life. And if you could make a donation to onlineforlife.org, what that will go to is that it will go to placing ads and, it will, um, and so that abortion-determined women will see these ads and they'll go to our call center we also are rolling out mobile units and sonogram machines that we can, um, we'll have two coming out soon and we're doing more, um, is, is that we can pull this mobile unit up right beside Planned Parenthood. And as these women are walking in, we can offer free sonograms. So if they go to onlineforlife.org, onlineforlife.org, mm-hmm. and make a donation, uh, that will rescue babies. And I would say the other thing, Nick, if it's okay to just, you know, give a plug is that one of the things that we have done is we um, have created an app in which people can pray in real time for women who are considering abortion. If they just go to, if they download, uh, download the Online for Life prayer feed, the Online for Life prayer feed, Every phone call that we have is recorded, and in the app, you will see women call in from real time, what city they're calling in from, and you can form a prayer group. Your prayer group in your, in your church small group, you can pray for these women in real time, and you will get back information. Like, for example, if she keeps her appointment, you'll get that information back. If she chooses life for her baby, you'll get that back. When she has the baby seven months later, you'll get a text back from that. And so this mm-hmm. is a way to kind of track your prayers for specific women who are going to the Internet right now. So she, when she goes to the Internet, she's going to click on our app. She, she thinks she's searching for an abortion. That will go on your phone, and you will know which city she's calling in from. We need people, Nick, to pray. So they can go mm-hmm. to the ProLifeApp.com, ProLifeApp.com, or just go to their phone and say, Online for Life prayer feed. That would be a huge, huge help. With what you were saying before we took this little break here, and once again, it looks like we're caught in a conundrum for the, this, the uh, secular mind today because it's always, we need to go with what the empirical evidence shows, and by empirical, they mean scientific because there are other kinds of empirical evidence. And so when it gets to abortion, it's like, well, we don't need the scientific data here. And then when it comes to the morality... There's no scientific data there, but that's still going to be held to as firmly as possible. And I can't but think of uh, there were other philosophers like Nietzsche and such who would say, hey, you got to get rid of this notion of good and evil, because if you're going to get rid of God, it doesn't exist. And I think he'd look at many of the skeptics today and say, you're all a bunch of wimps trying to talk about goodness and all this stuff. You got to learn what, you, what Vivera consequences are of the death of God and you haven't realized that yet you're exactly right the the atheists um, have no moral basis the the skeptic or the the radical feminists who 
is angry with God and the existence of God, and yet at the very moment they say that their knowledge is based upon science and so forth. But then it comes to this issue, and they don't want to look at the scientific data. They don't want to look at the scientific uh, model of the scientific textbooks of the abortionist. I just went on Amazon and I ordered the uh, the abortionist in in uh, in the city of Colorado and the procedures. These procedures are brutal by nature. Uh, how to dismember a child? Abortionists need to account for all the body parts as as well. And you know, for example, in these late term abortions that our president is is so zealous about these procedures um, use a sofa clamp to take out the baby's limbs and then eventually the sofa clamp is placed around the, the baby's skull and when he squeezes and he got, he's got to be really rough with it too to squeeze firmly he's got it he crushes the baby's skull and so that's the scientific uh, procedures but you know what the other the other side the pro-choice side whenever asked about science the politicians they say, well, it's above my pay grade, mm-hmm. or let's keep it legal. Well, wait a second. If you're in doubt, you should err on the side of life. If you say you don't have knowledge, uh, you should err on the side of life. Let's, to give an analogy, let's suppose we're out hunting with some friends and we see something moving in the bush, but we're not sure if it's a deer or a person, you should refrain from shoot, shooting. Um, and likewise, we should, if we're not really sure, we should, uh, we should err on the side of life. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we do this in law too. If we're not really sure someone is guilty, we don't give them the death penalty. And, uh, so, so, so we should err on the side of life, especially innocent human life. You know, when you were talking about the, uh, procedures used to cure of a child, that was, you know, I was thinking, Boy, honestly, this is one time during the show I wish I could just take the headphones off. Mm. Yeah, it's it's brutal, and I just do not even like to think about it. But, Nick, mm-hmm. that's what's happening in our cities. Yeah. That's what's happening in my city of Dallas. Yeah. That's what's happening in the city of Houston, where the largest abortion... you got, you got the largest church in America, and you got the largest abortion facility. And across America, we've... we've um, 57 million innocent babies. And so I think a good philosophical idea is, um, you know, if we don't know when life begins, you know, the embryologists say they do know life, that the human life begins uh, through the process of, of conception. That's what the embryologist says. But those in favor of abortion, just like the justices of the Supreme Court, they assume the idea that, well, if we don't know and there's disagreement, Therefore, abortion should be permissible. Well, well, why so? Why should you err on that side and not the other side? Again, mm-hmm. it's a bad philosophical idea that they're embracing, not based upon science. I think it was just yesterday I was on Facebook <coughs> surfing through and I saw this uh, image that's been going around, and maybe you've seen it also as comparing the number of people that died in World War II compare the number of people that have died thus far in abortion. And I saw 44 million annually. And I was looking at my part, you know, I, I'm really not sure if that number is right. Because <clears throat> I'm usually a person that before I share anything out there, I want to check and see if it's right. If you show me a quote, I want to see if I can really find that quote. And so I went and I looked and I saw 
yeah, it looks like this is right. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if I've seen that specific graphic that you're talking about, but I've heard others. I know even today that the United States is in company with just a few other countries that do abortion all the way up to the end of nine months. We're in the company with Canada, but also North Korea, China, and Vietnam. There's very few countries that allow this. There's more regulations in places like France and Brazil than there is in the United States. And, and that's something we shouldn't be proud of. And yet our society and our government that's a reflection of society is very proud of that. And even those who can call themselves conservative are so quick to put in a rape exception and so forth like that. You know what the truth is, is that there are people around us who were conceived in rape or one night stands. But what we shouldn't do is we should not punish the innocent little baby for the guilt of a father. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, well, what about cases of rape? Well, first of all, an abortion does not unrape a woman. It does not take away from the pain that she experienced. And it's, a, it's disgraceful and disrespecting towards her to tell her that just abort the child as if that's going to that's gonna heal the pain that she experienced in the rape. Mm -hmm. In fact, a study done by this, this, uh, by by Feminists for Life said that uh, there was a study done in the women who had been raped and conceived and had an abortion, they talked about having post-supportive, um, you know, stress and depression from the abortion that that outlasted uh, that of the actual rape. What they said is that the abortion procedure actually paralleled to that of the rapist. Mm -hmm. The guy comes in, he acts like he's very interested in it, but he doesn't. He takes advantage of her, of her, collects the money, and then drops her off when the procedure is done, never to see her again. That, you know, that is a, a problem, and I think, um, I think we need to uh, really rethink our politics. We need to protect all human life, um, and uh, I hope America can change. Do you see America changing in the future by your prediction, and if you do, what do you think we'll take to bring that about? Nick, I think there's going to be several things. One, the American church needs to stop being silent. Uh, they need to stop being cowards. This idea that church is just something for me to go and experience and turn off my mind and seeing the same seven words over and over and I just feel good and I feel fit fresh and this, you know, Jesus is saying something personal to me. I'm all for a personal relationship. But Jesus said that if any of you causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. And so Jesus spoke very um, boldly. I've had people working at abortion facilities try to justify their, their uh, behavior because of this, well, they have this personal relationship with Jesus. I would say, you know what, that's a different Jesus. The Jesus in the Bible says, I have come that you can have life and have it more abundantly. That's the Jesus I worship. What Jesus do you worship? And I told this security guard of a Planned Parenthood, Texas, his name was Earl. I told that to him. But I think in the church we need to get educated. Pastors need to quit being cowards and they need to get bold. And we need to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And we desperately need a revival. Mm -hmm. And also we need to be smart in our technology and use business skills 
and to apply that. And that's why I'm ex excited about Online for Life because we have four C-level executive, um, you know, four four businessmen who are full, you know, full time using marketing research to end abortion. And our staff has grown from about 12 people to 65. And uh, we have rescued about 2,600 babies. We need to steal the clients and take them away from Planned Parenthood, but we also need to train our, our children. But to teach our children, we need to learn. And so we need a revival as well. We also need to repent, and we need to look at ourselves and say, Lord, purify my heart. We need to cry out like David and say, create me a clean heart. And just like me, part of my story is I'm guilty because I was, even though I didn't have abortion, I was silent, Nick, for so long because I wanted my pastor to like me when I was a youth pastor. Mm -hmm. But um, I think we need to be bold, and, and it may count some people their jobs. It may count some nurses or attorneys or uh, you know youth pastors their jobs. But I encourage them to to be bold. I was reading today in John in John 12. It says many Jews believed in Jesus, but they didn't speak up because of fear of the Pharisees kicking them out of the synagogue. In other words, these young lawyers didn't want to lose their job and their access to the synagogue. And so they didn't, even though they believed in the miracles of Jesus, they loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. And we need to start loving the approval of God. Well, Dave, it's been a great having you on, but you've only been able to give us an hour, and now we're out, that time's coming to a close. If someone wants to get in touch, if you find out more, do you have a blog, a website, any way they can get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, Nick, they can look me up at davesterrett.com. They can follow me at, uh, at Dave Sterrett, and that's S-T-E-R-R-E-T-T. -T. And uh, I have the, uh, my own page on Amazon, too. And the Aborting Air Style book will, is available now on, on Amazon for pre-order. But it will also be up eventually on ChristianBook.com and also uh, Barnes and Noble. And uh, do you have any uh, final message you'd like to leave for the audience today? Look, can't we be thankful for grace? Mm -hmm. Aren't we thankful for the forgiveness in Jesus Christ? You know, uh, you know. The truth is, is that we all need forgiveness. But Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow him. And I would say, you know what, many people listening today are busy working professionals. Uh, Jesus said the greatest command is love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think to rescue babies, I think we need to engage both in our heart, but we also need to engage in our mind. And I hope that this book, Aborting Aristotle, Examining Fatal Fallacies in the Abortion Debate, I really hope that this will be a good tool combined with the power of prayer to end abortion in our cities in America. Well, Dave, it's been great having you on the show, and I hope we'll see you again sometime. Hey, thank you so much, Nick, and I hope to uh, uh, be on again and hope to meet you in person someday. Really thank you for your work. You're doing really good work. Thank you very much, and I can remind everyone also that uh, next week we're going to have Warner Mischke coming on. He's going to be talking about his book, The Global Gospel. So I hope you'll be here. This is also a topic I consider to be extremely important for now.